I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to LiveWire. As always, I am backstage here at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. You can probably hear everybody milling about. The show is going to get started in just a moment. And um, we're excited for this one. The theme for this hour is true stories. And we've got Megan Dom here. She is an incredible writer. She writes a column for the LA Times. She's got a new book out called The Unspeakable which I can't recommend highly enough. And then speaking of true stories, we've got documentary filmmaker Irene Taylor Brodsky here. You might have seen or heard about a documentary film she made some years ago about her parents, both of whom were deaf their entire life and decided to get cochlear implants in their 60s. Plus, we got music from David Wax Museum. It all gets started as soon as I head out on that stage. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Recorded in front of a live audience in Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire! With LA Times columnist and author Megan Dom, documentary filmmaker Irene Taylor Brodsky, with music from David Wax Museum and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth, but he can! He's Luke Burbank! Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you to everybody here at Revolution Hall in Portland. We have got a great show coming up for you. One of my very favorite writers, Megan Dom, will be out here in a little while. She writes amazing, compelling dispatches from her real life. And because of that, we've chosen a theme for this hour of true stories. Um, and I have a true story for you. I hold in my hand a um, small personal grooming kit. It has uh, scissors and nail clippers in it and a nail file. I bought it yesterday in Portland. It was $130. <laughs> so here's how that happened. There's a, a really fancy store here in town, which... I will not mention by name because I don't know if they'll consider this good or bad PR. <laughs> I love the store. Their specialty, though, is selling things you already have at very expensive prices. 
And it works great on me because it is an aspirational store for me. Like they sell a pen for $100. And I look at it and I think, that's a lot of money for a pen. But what if I was the kind of person who could just keep a pen their entire life? Like that's probably what Ernest Hemingway did. He probably fought a polar bear with the pen at some point. He seems like he was a one pen per lifetime kind of guy. And I want to be that kind of guy but I'm not. The other thing that I've been eyeing there is, really, it's just a piece of canvas with two handles on it for carrying firewood into the house. <laughs> because I imagine if I had that, I would become the kind of guy who carries firewood into the house and makes roaring fires, and my wife notices my virility and my ability to create heat for the family, and she can't keep her hands off me. In my life... I have made zero successful fires in any fireplace or campfire situation. I get the newspaper burning, and I start to think I'm the guy off the brawny paper towel roll, and then the newspaper burns up, and then the wood just starts smoking, and then it's pretty much game over. But if I had a $200 piece of canvas to carry the firewood in, I think it would be a different story. So what happened with this personal grooming kit is that it was $95, I thought, but I had store credit I had to use, so I just figured, you know, YOLO or whatever. <laughs> so I took it up to the counter, and then when the woman rung it up, it was, she mentioned it was actually $130 because I had selected a more expensive personal grooming kit. But this is the other thing about being in this store. I constantly want them to think I'm the kind of person who goes to this kind of store. So when she said $130, I just didn't even bat an eye. I was like, that's what I always pay for my personal grooming kits. I'm a guy who goes to stores like this. This is totally normal for me. And so she was ringing me up, and I went into a fantasy world about the kind of person that I can be now that I have this grooming kit. And it is like a kind of international man of mystery. Like, I just get on the Concorde, and I jet off to Europe. Is that even, do they even have the Concord anymore? But all of my fantasies are about things rich people did in the 80s, I think. Um, I'll just like get off the plane in Europe and then I'll notice that like my tuxedo has a loose thread and then I'll just pull out my grooming kit and I'll use the scissors and I'll just snip the thread and then I'll suavely slip it back into my lapel. So it sounded like a good purchase at that point for me until I realized last night the flaw in my plan you're not even allowed to bring nail clippers on the airplane. <laughs> Which means I will be an international man of mystery who has to check an entire suitcase exclusively for the purpose of bringing my overpriced personal grooming <laughs> kit with me. Uh, and in a related story, if you're interested in a gently used $130 <laughs> personal grooming kit... I've got one. If you could just come to the foot of the stage after the show, I'd be interested in talking about selling it to you. So that is a true story to get things going here. As a documentary filmmaker, Irene Taylor Brodsky has presented a wide range of true stories during her career, from kids at grief camp to the effort to eradicate polio in the Middle East to her own deaf parents getting cochlear implants in their 60s She's currently at work on a film for HBO about a very upsetting true story, that of two 13-year-old girls in Wisconsin who allegedly stabbed their friend 
as a tribute to something called Slender Man, a mythological creature created in an online forum back in 2009. She's also behind the movie Open Your Eyes. Please welcome Irene Taylor Brodsky to Livewire. Hello and welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, and uh, we're actually going to talk in a few minutes about uh, about the film you made about your parents, but I understand they're here tonight. They are. I think they're over by the interpreter, if I could guess. Yes. They're waving right Holly now. Sally. You can't, you can't see that on the radio, but trust us, they're here. Um, let's start, though, with uh, this movie that you uh, are working on for HBO about Slender Man. I just watched it. Uh, I may never sleep again, so thank you for that. Um, who is the Slenderman character, and where did that story start? Slenderman was actually developed online. He was the result of a Photoshop contest on an internet website called Something Awful, which is where you go if you're really into scaring yourself, scaring other people. So uh, he was developed by a graphic artist who uh, lives down in Florida, average guy, by his own admission, and he created this tall, seven, eight foot tall guy with no face who wears a black suit. And there's something about Slenderman that just obviously has proliferated and caught on. And within, he went viral very quickly. And part of our film sort of traces how he went viral. But he's particularly popular with kids. So for any of you who have kids in the nine to 18 year old age, they will definitely know who Slenderman is. Tell me about these uh, girls in Wisconsin who are accused of a really awful crime, which apparently uh, was a, a tribute to Slenderman. What was their story? So I know their story pretty well because I've spent the last year and a half with their families. Um, they just became completely obsessed with this character. He's sort of an online boogeyman. He's sort of a boogeyman of our age today because he's not in books or Grimm's Tales. He's online. And they really believe in him, hook, line, and sinker, and they just felt that he would approve of them more if they did something awful to someone they loved. Is that part of the literature, or was that just their interpretation? That is their interpretation that I think they created in their own mind out of a lot of the fan fiction. I mean, there's a lot. There's probably no fewer than a thousand fan fiction novellas online about Slenderman. There are YouTube series in four or five different languages. I mean, if you really immerse yourself in it, I think you can come up with all sorts of reasons for doing just about anything because he's inspires a lot of people to just do strange things. Did, had you ever heard of him before this project came around? I'm embarrassed to say I had not. I had not. I did not know anything about this. And someone who I work with at HBO just sent me a link to a New York Times article the day after the girls were caught and just said, do you know about this? And I had been looking for a year into making a film about children and the internet and just I didn't know what I wanted it to be I'm a huge fan of the internet I'm a huge supporter of the internet but I also have three kids and I just had to really wrap my head around this story because it was pretty frightening as a mother to walk into it but here I am how did you get the parents of these two young uh, young women to sit down for interviews because that's one of the things about the film that I found really surprising 
I've been a journalist at times in my career, and it's very hard to get people, particularly in this day and age, who are close to something like that, to agree to be in the picture. It was really hard. It was a national news story. I don't know if folks here remember it when it happened. It was about a year and a half ago. But there were a lot of people in the daily news grind who were reaching out to them, um, television news. And they just kept saying, no, no, no. And so I just persisted. And um, it does help that the more films you make, the more you have a body of work. And you can just say, look, don't trust me. Just watch my films. And... Um, I think it had helped that I had just finished a film about children going to grief camp. And totally different topic, but it was a film about children. And it was a film where I had to interview children. And I had to interview them about tough things, about true stories, about their mother dying or their brother dying. So that helped. I think that I had just finished that film. And I was able to send them a few other films. And so you'd have to ask them. But eventually they did um, pick up the phone and call me. Is that an acquired skill or ability to sit with people when they're in their intense grief? And is that something that you've developed over your career? Yeah, I mean, I think any interview is intense. This interview is pretty intense. Really? Don't you think? Does it feel intense to you? Absolutely. Because I'm never being interviewed. (laughs) I'm always doing the interviewing. So it's intense. Do you want to interview me for a few minutes? Because I can't talk about myself enough. I would love to. Do you want to know a true story? Uh, Do you want me to share a true story? Or were you going to tell a true story? Uh, I guess I was going to share one. See, I'm not even a very good good interview. No, this is good. What is the true story you want to share? About an hour ago, I bought a new telephone. And about two minutes before I got on stage, I dropped it in your toilet. (laughs) And I realized it was going to be a great night. Did you fish it out of the toilet? And follow-up question, did we shake hands when you came out on stage? I did. Yeah. Wait, okay, this is, this is important stuff. And I washed my hands. Okay, you fished, you fished it out of the toilet. I did. Is, did you turn it off immediately? No. Okay, this is useful advice to everybody here at Rev Hall, to you, to the radio listeners. If your phone is dropped in water, you need to turn it off immediately. What happens is it looks like it's okay, but when you turn, when you continue to use the phone, it's sending all of the circuitry is doing its thing and the water is shorting different things out. And by the way, the thing about putting it in a bag of rice, have you heard that one? Sure. That's hokum. But what's useful about it is that you won't touch your phone when it's in a bag of rice. (laughs) That's That's the useful element of your phone being in a bag. I dropped my phone in a toilet not long ago, so I've been doing some research on the topic. Well, I think many of us have. When I mentioned it in the green room, three or four people from the band and, yes. you know, the, your next guest. Oh, yeah, that happened to me. I dropped my keys in the toilet. Anyway, I just, I didn't feel like we could talk about Slender Man the whole interview. Oh, well, we, and we weren't going to, but we do need to take a quick break. We have Irene Taylor Brodsky here, documentary filmmaker. We're going to take a short break. Go turn your phone off, and then we'll be back with more. This is Livewire. This podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, makers of the Jarvis Standing Desk. And now, if you want a smaller footprint, but you still want the stability of a desk with some real substance, there's the Jarvis Jr., just as strong as its dad. But it takes up almost half the space, and it's adjustable at the touch of a button. So you can stand when you're feeling like the go-getter you are and sit when you dang well please. 
Because you're an adult and you can make your own choices. The Jarvis Jr., allowing the floor space challenged to stand prouder. Get more information at ergodepot.com. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI, Public Radio International. We're talking to Irene Taylor Brodsky, documentary filmmaker. Um, I, I saw a 25-minute version of an incredible film that you created recently called Open Your Eyes about uh, people in Nepal who have cataracts and have a very correctable condition but have lived many years in uh, essential blindness. What is the surgery that they're getting and also how much is the, the little piece of technology that they're you know, having put on their eye? So it's an interocular lens, which is something that's been uh, around in the U.S. now for almost two decades. Um, but it's just now making its way in the last five or ten years into the developing world. And it basically allows people who are blinded from cataracts, which is about 40 million people worldwide, to see in a matter of six or eight minutes of a surgery that is so simple. And the interocular lens now costs about $1.50 per lens. And this couple I found in the mountains of Nepal had been blind for 16 years. She had been blind for 16 years, him for 10 or 12, but they had not seen each other in that long. They had not seen their own children in 16 years. They had not seen any of their grandchildren. And so I followed them down a mountain. They got the surgery, and they could see within like 36 hours. I mean, it's sort of a fairy tale. It, they were sort of like my mother and father in the film I made about them in that it was just the film told itself because the characters are so good. You know, the, the topic's interesting, but the characters really are what make it. Yeah. Um, speaking of the film that you made about your parents, it was at Sundance. This might be something that people heard about or even saw. Um, your parents are deaf. Your siblings, uh, they have hearing? We all hear. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and well, why don't you tell the story, since it's yours. How old were your parents when they decided to look into having cochlear implants? They were in their mid-60s. And uh, so they'd been deaf a pretty long time. And their brains didn't really know what to make of it once they got the implants. And I think they were somewhat forewarned about that by their doctors. But I think, really, it's a film. It's a love story. And it's also a film about impossible dreams that we all have. You know, we still dream that we can hear after being deaf our whole lives, but the brain doesn't work that way. And what's beautiful is that the brain can work that way if you get the implant early. And I have a deaf son who was born shortly after I made the film, and he got an implant very early in his life, and now he's um, bilingual and playing piano in his fifth year. So you know, it, it's it's very different. But my parents, they still uh, enjoy the benefits of interpreters. They still do a lot of lip reading. But they have consciousness of sound, but they don't know how to necessarily make sense of it. And so what, yeah, your parents are actually here with us, and we have an interpreter uh, for them and anybody else in the audience who might be hearing impaired. Uh, what is their use of, if any, of the, the implant these days? Well, I think they'd probably wear it more if they weren't around my children so much <laughs> because my children are very noisy. All my kids are under 10. So um, we have a very noisy household and they're with us a lot. So uh, they wear it, but again, they cannot decipher language by hearing. And I think that has been uh, a huge decisive factor for them in wanting to wear it or not. Because yes, they can hear 
environmental sounds of a car going by or something in the street or something that might help them get along or birds overhead, but um, they still can't hear someone's voice and understand it. And so I think they just don't wear it as much because they don't need to, and they're very good at being deaf. They're very good <laughs> at lip reading. They're very accustomed to this, so, so they, they do great. Um, the film, by the way, is Here and Now. Um, so you, can you read lips then? She just nodded ominously at me for those out there in Radioland. I mean, are you, is that, is that an ability that you developed for some reason? I mean, you can hear, but you did know, that come I in You know, I learned handy? how to lip read because I wanted to know what my parents were saying. And my parents have this habit of talking with their voice turned off. In sign language, we do this. You take your finger up to your voice box and you turn it off. And they would turn their voice off, especially when they were talking about adult things or when they were talking about things that were about us. And so me and my brother and sister would always watch them. And I'm, I actually am an excellent lip reader. Are you, that's like a superpower. It is. And I can even lip read my parents from the side. <laughs> because that's how they would be talking. My mom, my mom can lip read me through the rearview mirror, no problem. That is incredible. <laughs> I feel like I want to start taking you or maybe your mom around to like busy restaurants and just spy on conversations people are having at the bar. Well, true story. My mother was called. Actually, I remember picking up the phone. I must have been nine or ten years old. It was 60 Minutes. It was one of the producers from 60 Minutes. This was like 1980. And I got a phone call, and it was someone from 60 Minutes saying, well, we heard that your mother is one of the best lip readers in the country, and we need uh, an investigative lip reader for uh, arson investigation that we're doing that we accidentally erased all the audio. And she flew to New York and she helped them. And then she's been involved in police investigations. Why are we she's interviewing real... you it's and true. not your mom? It's true. She's right there and is clearly more interesting. <laughs> Irene Taylor Brodsky, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. You are interesting. You are listening to Livewire from PRI. This week's show is brought to you in part by New Belgium Brewing, now featuring their Accumulation White IPA. With a snowy head and a nicely bitter bite, it's a lot like winter. <laughs> Except that Accumulation is a beer, and winter is a season of the year that's caused by one hemisphere of the earth being oriented away from the sun. So, as I'm looking at it, they're not alike at all, actually. It's weird that we thought to do that in the ad. Um, Anyway, more information about the beer is available at newbelgium.com. For more information on winter, uh, you should consult the internet. <laughs> Led by multi-instrumentalist and husband and wife team David Wax and Suze Slezak, our musical guest this episode mixes American roots music with Mexican folk to create their own genre, Mexoamericana, which is also available at a food truck outside the theater. <laughs> If you're on your way home tonight, their latest record is Guest House. Please welcome David Wax Museum to Livewire. I have a simple request. 
turn your house for gas And me, I'm in a time of transition I have a simple request Hope it's not an imposition I've been living out of suitcase Sleeping in dingy rooms Sleeping in dingy rooms I've been living out of suitcase I've never lived in L.A. But I've always wanted to I've never lived in L.A. But I've always wanted to Can I stay? That's David Wax Museum.
right here on Livewire. Um, true Stories is our theme tonight. You know, we were thinking uh, the old adage is that truth is stranger than fiction, and, and we thought, let's get some real true stories going on this here episode of the show. So we thought maybe we'd get announcer Jason Rouse out here, and Jason and I could kind of catch up on on how our weekends went. A little true storytelling. Jason, yeah. how, how was yeah. your weekend, man? Thank you for asking, Luke. It was, uh, it was pretty good. It wasn't bad. <clears throat> you know, I got to go watch my little cousin win the uh, All-Valley Under-18 judo competition. It was kind of a big deal. That's cool. Kind of yeah. a big deal. You know, the last fight was pretty intense. He fought the school bully, and he beat him by only one point. You know, it was really suspenseful. Uh, I didn't even know that he was in judo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, absolutely. Ever since he moved here from New Jersey, moved across country, he's been taking these lessons from the really kindly maintenance man of his building. Okay. And despite the guy's, you know, diminutive stature and obvious age discrepancy, he can beat anyone up at any time. Uh, that sounds a lot like the plot of the movie Karate Kid. Is that a movie, Karate Kid? Yeah, it is a movie. It's from the 80s. It was really a big deal. Yeah, uh, well, the 80s, I didn't really watch a lot of movies as a kid. We, were, we couldn't really afford luxuries like that. So oh, really. I'm sorry, Jason. It's not a big deal. No, I mean, we were, we were poor. It wasn't a big deal. I mean, I don't mind talking about it. You know, growing okay. up, um, we were, had to make a lot of our ends meet, you know, to keep the house. And so I had a paper route. My mom worked, like, 24 hours washing people's clothes. Jeez. And, you know, we had, like... Four aunts and uncles living with us at all times. God, I can't you know, they were really, it was, it was tough. You know, one fun story on my way home one day, um, I, I went down to the local potato chip store uh-huh. and I bought myself my very own bag of potato chips because I just found the Sacagawea dollar, you know, in the gutter. Oh, okay. Picked it right up and I walked in and I bought myself my very own, I'll never forget, they were called Tonka potato chips. I popped it open, and inside was this golden ticket. And it, it earned me a free tour, you know, of the whole factory. And really? I took, yeah. And I took Larry. Yeah. Of course, my alcoholic but absolutely kind-hearted uncle. Yeah, I know Larry. With me to go on this thing. It, you know, it changed my life. You know, it was one of my great memories. Yeah, it also sounds a lot like the plot of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Jason. Mm, well, agree to disagree there, Luke. Uh. But now that I think about it, I did kind of, you know, I had a rough time as a kid, but I think adults, we should all appreciate what we have now, you know? I mean, growing up, I mean, we couldn't even dance in our town. Seriously? Yeah. 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 The butcher's kid, he was dancing one night in the middle of the road, and he got smoked by a stretch hummer, you know? So, you know, they totally outlawed it. All we dance? could do was, like, play tractor chicken for fun. Um... Jason, I think we're going to need to move on because all of your stories sound like they're from a Kevin Bacon movie at this point. Um, I don't think so, but that's fine. I mean, truly, truly, I also just really played video games all weekend, so there's not much fun to talk about. No, but it may not be fun to talk about playing video games all weekend, but it is the truth, and, and that's kind of what we're here trying to talk about. Sure. We're trying to tell true stories. Okay, well, I guess, I mean, it's a, it was a little interesting. It turns out I wasn't playing an actual video game at all. Uh-huh. I was actually controlling the military central war computer. <laughs> and I almost launched something called a global thermonuclear war against the, the country of the Soviet Union, which uh, I didn't even think they called it that anymore. And, you yeah. know, I could have almost ended the world. So yeah, Okay, great. Let's just call it an interesting weekend for you and leave it at that, Jason. You know what? I'll agree to agree on that, Luke. You know, it's, weekends are funny like that. It's like my mom used to always say, weekends are like a bag of gummy bears. Yeah. Sometimes you'll get green. 
Your mom sounds like a wonderful woman. Jason Rouse, everybody, with true stories from his weekend. Hey, if you are planning to be in the Portland area soon, do not miss our next show. It's on December 19th right here at Revolution Hall. We'll have my buddy Tom Bodette from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here. Sarah Shapiro, who is a producer and writer on a great TV show called Unreal, plus comedian Christina Wong, and music from Box Set. More information at LiveWireRadio.org. All right, you'd think that as a columnist for the L.A. Times for a decade, Megan Dom would have pretty much used up all of her true life stories, but that is the weird thing about real life, people. It just keeps happening. And Megan keeps writing about it in a completely fascinating manner. Her latest book is The Unspeakable, a collection of highly personal essays that prompted Nylon to call her her generation's Joan Didion. Please welcome Megan Dom to Livewire. That was weird. You came out, and then I went to give you a hug, which I thought was overly personal, but then you kissed me on the cheek. I know, I, and which... I'm, I'm so against the social kiss. I just violated every... every. I think social kiss should be, like, eliminated from the culture. But why I just why did so? It. Because it's like, are you going to be the person who does it? Are you going to, like, leave the party and you have to do it to everybody? So I don't know. That was totally out of character. I'm just, well, maybe should it was good because again. it was the only thing more awkward than the hug I was trying to give you. Okay. So made All me right. feel less bad. I don't know. I felt like, you know, you want to walk out on a stage and, yeah. like, show that... You know what? I just wanted people to think that I knew you really well. So right. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> I have been a huge admirer of yours for years. I, I love your books. I find this new book just totally fascinating and written you. in your in your great kind of very straightforward voice uh the the book starts out talking about when your mom passed away and you write pretty unsparingly about your mom and i'm wondering like was that something that you well first of all can you try to describe her a little bit for folks that maybe haven't had a chance to read the book yet like give us a, a sense of of what your experience was like, maybe in a nutshell. Being... Oh, my gosh. I, you know, it took me more than a year to write the essay. And I actually, I never, I never meant to publish it. The only way I ever finished it was that I finally just said, I'm never going to publish this. So I just need to, like, get it down. You know, she, my mother, she had many incarnations. She sort of started out one way, and then she became, like, a theater person. So At she, what age? Um, you know, like 50 maybe. That's so late. she kind of, I know, but it's never too late to get into the game. So she kind of followed me to high school basically and became like took over the theater department by the time I was through high school. So she was incredibly charismatic in a lot of ways and, and um, had many different sides. I think that uh, she just had a hard time um, kind of being in her own skin or sort of deciding how to be. Um, you know, like that phenomenon when somebody, uh, like a, you know, you go away to another country for your junior year abroad in college, and mm -hmm. you come back with like the accent of that country that yeah, you like, went oh, to. Yeah, you're like, I forget. Yeah. How do you like, say bathroom I just in can't, English? Right. So. She was a little bit, there was a little bit of that. There was a little bit of that. But, you know, it's, it's really hard to talk about because, she, I mean, people, I mean, obviously I loved her. People loved her dearly. The piece is a brutal, brutal essay. And it's, I don't think I've ever actually talked about it at length. So not only did I, like, you know, social kiss you, now we're talking about this. So this is, like, way out of my comfort zone. But then how did it become 
part of the book if you never intended to publish it? It start well, actually, the book then came to be because of this of this piece. So, I mean, I am an essayist. I do a lot of stuff. I'm a columnist. I've written a novel. I've been a journalist for a long time. But I really love the essay. Um, and my first book was a collection of essays. And um, then all these years later, I just I thought, well, I really love this form. I want to do a book of essays that were written specifically for this collection, not written for a magazine, um, uh, you know, designed to be in the company of one another. And I wrote this essay and, um, you know, basically it, it tells the story of, of my mother getting this terrible cancer and my sort of helping to take care of her and feeling like I had to perform this kind of relationship. And so did she. I think we both felt this kind of mandate to show people that we were having this really cathartic or redemptive experience. And it occurred to me that this, I mean, to me, this is like, other than the social kiss, this is like the primary sort of psychological tyranny of our culture is that we're supposed to have, um, we're supposed to become a better person through adversity. You know, there's always this redemption narrative that the culture is, is fixated on. So I started to think, well, you know, what if we don't actually become closer through this process of, of her dying? Like, what if I, and then I, and you know, it so happened that my mother, my mother and her mother had a terrible relationship. The week that my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer, her own mother died. Um, and then less than a year after my mother died, I got a freak illness and almost died myself. Right. Tell yes. me about that a the little The book bit. is actually really, really funny. It's um, a laugh riot. It's really riot. funny. So it actually, I, you know, I, I, I just want to <laughs> stand up for this book really quickly. It is really funny. Yeah. There's, despite so, there's something the for everyone. Yeah. There's well, a lot, for instance, piece about dogs. We'll, a lot of dogs. We'll talk later about Lord Lanto, which was oh, your um, yeah, yeah, shamanic yeah. name or something from a horrendous sounding ex-boyfriend of yours. Let's, let's get to that in a moment. First, okay. back to the funny stuff. You almost died. Yeah. Yeah. I almost died. And, um, you know, I didn't, then I, when I didn't die, uh, you know, I, I got this freak illness and I was in a coma and it was like horrible for everyone else. It was no skin off my nose because I was unconscious. Um, and then when I woke up, everyone was like, Oh my God, you know, you were in a coma for five days and they thought you were going to be brain damaged. And, um, are you going to, like, be a better person now? Like, are you going to stop all your, you know, Meshuggah nonsense? And, and I thought, I actually, I, I have to, you know, I'm kind of proud. I have the presence of mind to say, no, probably not. No, <laughs> no. I'm going to be better for, like, thank you. Thanks. I'm going to be better for, like, a couple weeks tops. <laughs> and then I'm going to go back to my old ways. Is that about how it went? Yeah. Yeah, but see, that's the thing is I don't understand why why we have to change. I think that I think that that's sort of overrated. Like, isn't the best outcome of, from a crisis that you would stay the same, that you would be the same person, right? Because that would indicate that whoever you were before that was was okay, essentially, right? Like, if yeah. if, if a if a tragedy or if challenging circumstances make us change, it means we clearly weren't doing things right before. The tragedy? Is that what the implication is? I don't know. It's kind of like when people say, oh, wow, you look amazing. You look great. It's yeah. like, really? Like that, you said I looked horrible before. You know, that's, real, that's like what that means, you know? Uh, we're talking to Megan Dom, by the way. Her book is... You look great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You're looking great I've these days, Megan. I've never met you, but yeah. yes. Well, we have kissed. I know. The book is <laughs> The Unspeakable. This is Livewire Radio. Um, I, I was tempted to introduce you as Lord Lanto. 
at the top of the show. Will you uh, explain how you got that name and also (laughs) how you got with the guy who got you that name? Gosh, you're asking me things I never talk about. Can't we talk about dogs? We're going to... So, yeah. Okay, so when when I first moved to Los Angeles... I dated this guy that was into, um, you know, like he he visited a, a spirit guide counselor, um, and what that you guys aren't even laughing. You're like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It is Portland. After I know. All. Um, yeah, it's like oh, there's like a food truck down yeah. there that has, you know, you can order that. You won't also. believe it. This guy so, used to bring his own bag to the grocery store. Yeah, I know. Like a crazy person. <laughs> My God, I don't. Yeah. So, no, so it's like we would go, um, yeah, it, it involved visiting this woman, and you would, like, lie down on this sort of massage table, and she would put on these, remember those glasses, zany zappers? Like, you're probably, is anybody old enough to remember that? The flashing sunglasses. Oh, and they're, yeah, like, yeah, they have yeah. the, like, little thing, right. So you kind of put those on, and then she would, like, bang these drums, and, and like, you know, basically, and, and you were supposed to tell her, you know how, like, you just press on your eyes and, like, certain colors, like, you're supposed to tell her what colors are coming to you, and then she would, like, channel the colors and come back and write and write this stream of conscious um, thing saying what like you know God or you know figure of the past you was your spirit guide so mine was somebody named Lord Lanto um, but I never heard from him again so that but your that was it your your I sort of boyfriend Paramore. At, at the time he was under the impression that he was reincarnating Jesus Christ. Yeah, he'd been told a couple times Jesus Christ was his guy. Talk so. about bragging. Yeah. So I know. Well, this is what I'm trying to understand. You write about some of the behavior of this guy like you guys are checking into a hotel and you're sw- he wants you to switch rooms but then he likes the office chair from the previous yeah, room. Yeah, he wanted to move the yeah. Why would you stay with somebody who, I know. who, just, who, I know. who displayed these behaviors? I, because I don't ever become a better person. I don't ever learn. <laughs> well, obviously, I didn't stay. I didn't stay. I mean, I, you know what? I think everybody needs to have, like, that kind of relationship where you can go on a show and talk about it later, like, how they wanted... You can go on a show and be angry about talking they wanted about to, it later. Yeah, they want to change the hotel room, but they liked the desk chair in the previous room, so they make the bellhop go down, like, 20 floors in the elevator and bring the old desk chair up and swap it out with the other. I don't know. He just said, he said, he said, I want to have the best possible experience. And that's the name of the essay. The be- it's called The Best Possible Experience. But, you know, again, it's, it's a really great metaphor for other things. And, you don't yeah. seem like a person who takes a lot of crap, though. And I'm reading, I'm reading about you in this relationship you were in, and I'm, thinking, I'm trying to square the idea of who you are in a lot of your writing and that person who is putting up with I think all I'm that. kind of anthropological like I have a oh. you know I never I never wanted kids so I think it's interesting because when you don't have I never had like a like a time clock so I ne- I always just sort of allowed myself to kind of meander in you were like re- you were taking field notes kind on of. dudes I know I'm so, it makes me sound like a really like a jerk but yeah I don't know uh, do people like this ex-boyfriend you wrote about do they see the books and do they call you like? No, 
I, what, no. Are you talking about me in this well, time now we went to that you may. I know. It's terrible. I know. I, it's no. terrible how we keep promoting this book that you're here to promote. It's really blowing your cover. I don't want anyone to read it now. <laughs> I'm going to take it off the shelves. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, have, I haven't heard from You know, I actually find that people are surprisingly happy to be written about. Uh, people, are, you know, at, at the end of the day, people were all such narcissists that mostly the, the and I all, and I'm actually, I never write about somebody if it's in less, you know, I, I change names and I'm pretty, I'm actually pretty judicious, but I have found that the times that I've worried the most about somebody being angry, they've usually been sort of thrilled and go on to brag about it later, so. Uh, stay right there. Megan Dom is with us. We've got to take a short break on Livewire, but we will be right back. Dubuque Monthly, this month in Plano, your Aurora. You know, for some cities, coming up with an interesting monthly magazine can be a real challenge. But Portland Monthly is lucky enough to celebrate one of America's most vibrant, innovative, and downright freaky cities. Subscribe now for just a dollar an issue at pdxmonthly.com slash livewire. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this podcast version of Livewire. You know, we would not exist without you, the listener, because... What would be the point of doing this show if you guys weren't out there taking notice of it? Look, if you feel like Livewire has brought something great into your life, like maybe a band you love or an insight from one of our comics or our guests, please consider becoming part of our League of Extraordinary Listeners. Membership starts at just 35 bucks a year, and it comes with some great perks like members-only content and members-only jackets. Not the second one, but the first one, which is pretty cool. Visit LiveWireRadio.org to join today. And thank you so much. Hey, welcome back to LiveWire from Portland, Oregon. My name's Luke Burbank. We have Megan Dom here. Her latest book is uh, The Unspeakable. You were mentioning that we're all narcissists. I think we are probably, uh, because of technology and all the ways that we can now all kind of stay in touch with each other and present versions of ourselves online and stuff. I do think we all feel like we have... A, I spent the first five minutes of this show telling a story about buying an overpriced personal grooming kit. I mean, what is that about? Is this, is this a bad trend for us as a society that we all want to tell our stories... Or is it a positive thing? Because there are lots of interesting stories out there. I don't know. I have really, I have a really love-hate relationship with social media, or, you know, or or Facebook. Although I have to say, I was I was watching backstage and, and Irene, you know, we had been talking and and, Irene and, Taylor I, Brodsky, and she was talking the... about how I, you know, she had, you know, dropped her phone in the toilet and and she said, oh, and someone else said she dropped her keys in the toilet and I was like, well, that's me. I I was going to tell that story, but I and so I was like, gosh. So she's now, but I. Have have to say that I actually flushed my keys down the toilet is what happened. So what ha I mean, just uh, if you learn nothing else tonight, know that if you should not have your keys like in your pocket, if, I'm sorry to be graphic, you know, you're going to like do your business and there's a certain angle at which you stand right. up and then flush the toilet in that moment. There's like a rhythm to it. We don't yeah. even think of it. It's intuitive. Well, and uh, well, I don't know. This Speaking is also for myself, a PSA for looking before you flush. If you're a looker, see, see, that's, that's, 
there's two different schools there. Yeah. There's two different schools. So well, I didn't feel the need. I may drop my keys in the toilet. They're never going down to the subterranean sewer level because I'm, in fact, a looker. And you are Megan Dom. The latest book is The Unspeakable. Thank you for coming on the show. I feel like we should kiss again as you leave, but... We'll save that for backstage. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines with 38 nonstops from Portland and this winter adding Austin, Texas, where Livewire airs on KUTFM. Go from chilly and rainy to chilly reinos <laughs> in just a couple of hours. Alaska Airlines keeping you connected nonstop. More information at alaskaair.com. One of the great Mexican food puns we have made on this show. Welcome back to the stage, David Wax Museum. All actors in a play It's been 
sun starts to burst The atmosphere shatters like a bell We all carry a little Of the holy and the broken We're all asleep Until we're awoken Sometimes Your heart's wide open Love still has nowhere That's David Wax Museum here on Livewire, and that's our show. Well, that was um, some true stories shared out there on stage. Uh, that's uh, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Irene Taylor Brodsky, Megan Dom, and the music of David Wax Museum. The show is also made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Our hotel accommodations are generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hommeister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is also a producer, editor, and part of our house band, along with Dave Jorgensen, Ben Landsverk, and Ned Failing. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone. Our guest writer this show is Sean Jordan. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by Mr. D. Neil Blake. Big thanks this show to Revival Drum Shop here in Portland. Also thanks to our marketing director, Laura Hatton, our development director, Kim Bergstrom, and our operations manager, Lauren Masterson. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, the Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Maybell Clark McDonald Fund, the Oregon Community Foundation, Work for Art, the Multnomah County Cultural Coalition, and listeners like you find people. For more information about the show or how to become a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank, and we will see you next week. 
PRI Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.